Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center episode 64, Space Weather. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So in this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know what's going on right here at NASA. So if you're familiar with us, you'll know that we recently just completed a five-part series on the hazards of human spaceflight. One of those topics was on radiation, and Dr. Zarana Patel gave us a great perspective on what's going on and what we're doing to learn what happens to the, to the body when exposed to space radiation, especially for long periods of time. So today we're exploring what's being done right now to document radiation exposure, not only to make, us, to make sure our astronauts are healthy, but to really understand it. So Dr. Steve Johnson is one of the senior scientists of the Space Radiation Analysis Group, uh, does not only that, but designs hardware, conducts physics modeling, and 3D modeling, and uses data to plan for future missions. But first, I wanted to start with Dr. Patel, who gives us a nice overview of why studying this is so important. So to date, there are four health risks from space radiation exposure that we um, identify. The first one is cancer, um, the risk of radiation-induced carcinogenesis, and that includes epithelial cancers and leukemias. Um, and this is actually the biggest contributor to this permissible exposure limit. That it, That's the standard we set for our astronauts. Um, the next one is the risk of in-flight and late CNS decrement. So CNS is central nervous system. Hmm. And basically, it's the risk of uh, behavioral or cognitive decrements, either in-flight or late post-mission, which can manifest in um, neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's. Oh, wow. And this one, we're targeting uh, pathology that can have commonalities between those disorders and cardiovascular disease, which brings me to the next risk, which is the risk of radiation-induced cardiovascular disease. But it's not just cardiovascular disease. It includes things like cataracts and other degenerative tissue effects, such as immune decrements, uh, respiratory and digestive dysfunction, early aging or premature aging. Um, and finally, the last one is the risk of acute radiation syndromes. This is re really a specific one for solar flares, or what we call solar particle events. So this one is a more um, intermittent but large dose exposure from a solar flare. Mm. And you have things like skin burns, prodromal responses, nausea. This one is fairly effectively shielded against. That was a clip from our first episode on the hazards of human spaceflight, radiation. But today we're diving deep into our real-time operations dealing with radiation and space weather with Dr. Steve Johnson. So with no further delay, let's get right to it. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit for the red. Here she goes. Thanks for coming today, Steve. Um, this is an interesting topic. Uh, I'm calling it space weather, but its I don't think it's exactly what it sounds like. When I think of weather, I think of rain clouds, I think of thunder, but space weather is a little bit different, isn't it? Well, it's a little different, yes, uh, but it, it's similar in that it's a changing environment. In this case, rather than the changing in environment and the atmosphere around us, we're looking at how the environment is changing in space around us. And in this case, what the parameters that are changing are charged particles, magnetic fields, um, the solar wind, uh, a lot of different parameters. But in the end, it's the charged particles and the radiation that we're most concerned about, and we uh, want to monitor how um, how that changes with time and uh, what drives us what drives all of these dynamic changes are changes that occur at the sun on various time scales. And uh, so we want to be in kind of solar physicists in a way, but that's what starts the, the cold fronts and warm fronts or whatever, <laughs> if you will, they have the influences to change how the, the space environment changes around us. Really? So, so it's, it's mainly an environmental thing, the changing environment, that is the weather, but it seems like the sun is the primary source of that weather. Yes, it is. Okay. So, and you said, I guess we'll start with radiation, because radiation is probably one of the more significant things that you're looking at, right? Well, that's our primary purposes for 
Uh, we want to monitor the radiation environment for crew health purposes, hmm. for crew radiation health and protection. We also advise the flight team when there are changes in the environment that may be of concern to people that have, say, hardware that are uh, might have sensitive are sensitive to radiation, but our primary focus is working within, at least for the operations group, within the space radiation analysis group. Mm -hmm. uh, the operations portion, that's our primary focus, is to um, watch out for the crew. Yeah. And actually, it, it kind of turns around the other way. A lot of times, it's watching out for the flight control team because huh. everybody hears radiation, everybody goes hysterical, you know? Like, <laughs> and so a lot of times, we're... More often than not, we're, we're preventing radiation hysteria and say, no, this isn't a big deal. Just calm down. And this, right. is, this is fine. You know, we don't need to do anything. And so more often than not, that's our story. Then uh, the sky is falling. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, it's not so much, you know, you have to worry about the folks here on Earth. It's the folks here on Earth worried about what's going on in space. We got a yeah. nice little protect, protective bubble, the magnetic sphere, right, that keeps but us the, kind of safe. The, between the atmosphere and the... Um, Earth's magnetic field, we get a lot of protection. Yeah. And, and the space and the space station gets a lot of protection from the magnetic field. Most of the time, yeah. we're protected. Maybe, say, 95% of the time, we're protected by the magnetic field. And there's only 5% of the time that we intermittently kind of slip out from underneath this radiation protection umbrella uh -huh. and can, can see free space radiation. And so those are the intervals of times that we're most concerned with. Interesting. Yeah, we've talked about radiation before on the podcast, mostly from the biological perspective, but not so much from the operational, the day-to-day, -day, you know, here's what we're doing every day to make sure the crew is, is healthy on board. So I kind of wanted to start with, because radiation is such a big part of space weather, diving into that. What is radiation? Let's start there. Well, radiation generally is, in a generic sense, is transferring, um, is transfer of energy. And in the case in our case, or in our specific application, radiation are, is composed of charged atomic nuclei. Usually they're fully ionized, so they don't have any electrons, and they have very high kinetic energies, and they will move along uh, at high velocities until they encounter matter of some sort, and then they will have interactions primarily with the electrons of the substrate, and then they will slowly give up their kinetic energy and when people become that mass that they're slowing down in, the energy is transferred to the electrons, and the electrons are what create all the bonds of all the big molecules, so we're disrupting those bonds, and when that's your DNA, if you disrupt those bonds, you're disrupting the cellular code, and you might kill the cell outright, or you may have some artifact that's been modified but still stable enough to be passed on to future generations hmm. and it's that type of damage that becomes the the damage of highest concern is that some stable uh, alteration in the dna code could be uh carried on wow so it's not really something you feel kind of an ever presence well, thing it's something that's very small but high energy and has a lot of impacts over time yeah that's that's right it's, it's you can't you can't feel it yeah, yeah. So is a lot of it, you said, like you said, coming from the sun, but is there is there a part that's galactic cosmic rays, anything other than the sun, too? Well, the sun gives us the short bursts of radiation that hmm. uh, of, of high... Well, there's always, there's always charged particles coming off the sun, and that's called the solar wind, and it's benign. It doesn't have the sufficient energy to be of concern ever. It's oh. just a short burst that we get during uh, solar proton events that protons are accelerated to high enough energies that they can penetrate the spacecraft and penetrate into the person and, and give them some exposure. Oh. Normally, day-to-day, uh, -day, we have two primary sources of radiation. One is uh, the trapped radiation belts, or the Van Allen belts, if you will. Yeah. Uh, those are mostly trapped protons, trapped electrons. And we pass through a certain region of the orbit where that belt comes close to the Earth and we pass through that about six times a day. And then the rest of the time, it's just kind of this, this background radiation, which is from the galactic cosmic radiation. Ah. And the source of that is from outside the, outside the solar system, throughout the galaxy, maybe particles even from galaxies far, far away. <laughs> and uh, they just have very, you know, created maybe during supernovas and these 
a nuclei have been accelerated to very high energies and uh, much higher than the solar protons or the trapped radiation. They're very, very penetrating. And um, they're also, it's about 90% protons. So you have 10% that's not protons. And as the atoms, atoms get heavier, uh, they are capable of doing more damage and biologically they're um, of more concern. And so when hmm. we start leaving Earth's low Earth orbit uh, to be in free space, whether you're on the moon or on the way to Mars, uh, the GCR, galactic cosmic radiation, the GCR exposure is increased and becomes becomes more of a threat that you know we might exceed what our current limits are. There's no reprieve from this chronic low-level radiation that's very damaging, yeah. and that becomes of a big concern to, for those uh, types of missions. You said daily dose of radiation is coming from the ever-present galactic cosmic radiation. It's still not a lot because of the protection we have because we're in low Earth orbit versus right. being out deeper it's, out into space. It's, it's modulated, so mm. it's... I don't know, maybe a third okay. or a quarter of what it would be if we were in free space. That's the, the total amount of GCR that we receive while we're in low Earth orbit okay. is about a third or a quarter of what it might be in free space. Now, I didn't realize that the – I thought the space station was, was pretty low, but it seems like it's peaking out into little bits of the Van Allen radiation belt ever a couple times a day, you said, right? Well, you can't – the only way you can avoid the that – that region of the trapped radiation belts that comes down real low is known as the South Atlantic Anomaly. Ah. And very conveniently, it was located over the South Atlantic near South America. <laughs> it's slowly drifting west with time, so I guess they may have to rename it after a few decades because uh, it'll be in a different position. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's part of the weakening of the, the magnetic field. The only way to avoid the uh, trapped radiation is to fly at low altitudes, and then you're flying where the atmosphere is thick enough still that it uh, really reduces the amount of radiation from the, the trapped protons. As mm-hmm. you go to higher altitudes, you get increasingly larger trap doses. Yeah. 250 miles above the Earth is a pretty nice spot. It's high enough where you don't have to really worry about atmospheric drag too much, just a little bit. You have to reboost every once in a while. But it's low enough where you're getting a decent amount of radiation protection uh, works both ways yeah 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 <laughs> okay less you know the the, the atmosphere being um, like the atmosphere being uh, an influence on on satellite drag it's also drag on protons on the space radiation so ah. you have less satellite drag you have less drag on the protons so you really start having higher doses so there winds up to be this trade that if you want to fly really high and not have reboosts because you're trying to avoid the the drag of the spacecraft on the spacecraft, um, you wind up getting more dose. So yeah. there is a there there is there is a trade there that um, um, spacecraft drag wins in the in the in the in the pocketbooks. Yeah. <laughs> So let's uh, let's let's go into what your group does, the Space Radiation Analysis Group. Um, it's got it's got a, quite a lot of different. I guess areas that you're you're focusing on, but one of the, one of the ones is the is what we mentioned up front, which is just the day to day operations of what's going on aboard the space station. So so what are you doing to monitor the what's the radiation environment of the International Space Station? Well, we go we we're part of mission control, and we uh, go in every day. Uh, we report to the flight surgeon and the flight director. Okay. And uh, we go in every day and. Uh, fire up our systems and make sure everything's running right, Make check on all our instruments. We have a half dozen uh, radiation instruments that are on the space station. Uh, we ch- check on their status, check mm-hmm. on the data trends, check on the space weather, uh, hmm. what we see. Uh, we coordinate with um, a group in the with NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. They have a group. Uh, it's called the Space Weather Prediction Center, which is kind of like the National Space Weather Service, if you will. And we talk to them, and they're the experts, and we uh, compare notes about what we see for trends, and it's up to us to kind of take what their total outlook is and apply it to our specific situation with our mission. Uh, we also um, 
besides checking our instruments, uh, make sure our computer codes are running, up and running, uh, check on just the normal admin for being part of uh, um, mission operations, mm. you know, what's hap- just what's happening you know, on the ground and what this crew schedule is and such things and put that all together. And then we're on call. We have two people that are always on call every day, and we're supposed to be uh, able to respond back within 45 minutes uh, if we get a page. And one of our one of our systems is a server that is ingesting uh, space weather data, and if it pulls in values that are above thresholds that we've established, then we get emails, notifications. Uh, hmm which tells us to come in, and NOAA, SWPSI, uh, Space Weather Prediction Center, Center, will also give us a call and let us know. So we have a little bit of redundancy in terms of uh, uh, how we get notified. We have one server that's prime. We have mm. another server that's doing the same job, but just checking to make sure the first one's running so it'll <laughs> send us a note if it doesn't, if the prime was not running. And then the Space Weather Prediction Center has its own email, and they follow up with a phone call. So we're not likely, and we have two people, so we're not likely to miss a, a call in so huh. that's kind of our ops um ops work in a nutshell nice so this uh, i'm trying to think about you, you said space weather and you'll get notified if something is happening what are some of the events that would be happening that you would get notified and says hey come in in 45 minutes well the primary thing would be for what we would call an energetic proton event and that would be a situation where um, an event has occurred on the sun, and normally that event is uh, a coronal mass ejection. Hmm. Uh, there's a couple ways to accelerate protons, but the ones that really generate the events that of, are the big threat to us are, the, are generated by uh, uh, the development of a coronal mass ejection. And as that coronal mass is, becomes disconnected magnetically from the, the photosphere and starts to rise there's a shock wave that goes through the corona and accelerates the protons and that's what arrives but as that develops there's a lot of energy that's being released across the inner you know electromagnetic spectrum uh, there's x big large there's large x-ray flares which becomes our first indication that something goes on mm. that something's occurring you know why? You know we get we get a page if it's uh, above uh, an M5 flare. So we have to go and look and see. Well, why did we have that flare? Is that something of importance? Is it of, is it at a location on the sun that's important or or not? Hmm. And um, if it is important, we'll probably also have radio bursts. Um, we call them type two radio sweeps, radio bursts, type fours, ten centimeter bursts. I like to refer to them as Dr. Pepper events, 10, 2, and 4. <laughs> but uh, if we get those, then that's usually an indication collectively between a large X-ray flare and the radio burst that, that there is a proton event occurring. And then with our knowledge of or situational awareness of where the regions are on the sun and what's the probable threat, we know pretty quick whether we might see protons you know, quickly or slowly, but we kind of have a feel for for being able to anticipate at that point and can respond. Hmm. Uh, and then when we cross those thresholds, Swipsy also lets us know. So the Space Weather Prediction Center is letting us know the details of the flare, about where it is, how big it was. Uh, if they think the protons are going to come up, they have a code that they run that helps try to predict what the probability is just based on the, the um, parameters that have been active uh, with the flare. As, as at the onset of the event. So when I'm guessing you're getting this data all the time, what do you see normally? Is it is it kind of going off in all different directions and don't really have to worry about it coming towards Earth very frequently? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Um, there's a couple variants of that. One is oh. the sun's usually not very active, so... Oh, um, good thing for us, I guess. Yeah, but it makes it boring for us, you know. <laughs> Today's forecast is boring to mostly boring because there's no sunspots on the sun today. Um, but um, on the threat end, just when something does occur, it can have a pretty wide longitudinal distribution in oh. terms of influence. So wow. even though um, 
Well, we have our best magnetic connection to somewhere on the Western Hemisphere of the sun. So if something happens there, um, we can have um, protons here almost right away. Oh. If it's on the east side of the sun, we may get protons, but it may take um, a day or so for them to get above our action levels. I mean, we can see them slowly trickle up, but they're so far away, they have to diffuse across the magnetic field lines of the sun, and that just takes a while. Yeah. So in some cases, we're directly connected. In some cases, we're not so connected. But the influence can be very wide. Um, wow, that's kind of scary to think that something happening on the West Hemisphere, if you would see the effects almost immediately. So there's, in that case, I guess, operationally, there's nothing much that you can do. You can't, you know, shelter in place or anything. If, when we're, well... We have a very good example of, of, of one that uh, such an event occurred back in January of 2005, hmm. and uh, it's a it's a good illustration. Uh, the, the protons were arriving before the flare had even finished peaking, so that that was unusual just in that fact alone. Hmm. Plus, it was the highest protons that for a particular energy band that we looked at. Um, energetic protons were, were higher than they've been in the space program uh so we had all this occurring at the same time now the thing was is that the crew happened to be on an orbital pass that it was not slipping out from underneath that protection anytime soon so we had eight hours to for the orbit to process before uh we um would have the risk of the crew being encountering extra exposure from the sun hmm. and so they just gone to bed so we didn't do anything there wasn't any shelter for them because there's no there wasn't any influence from the event because of the orbital track i see and so by the time they got up the event had decayed a lot and so they just just let them do their normal business oh. know, which is you know working in the lab and such because the lab's pretty well shielded so it's right. it's a good place to be during an event it's a good place to be working so we can continue our ops you know we don't want to stop ops right but um you know if we need to do that we, we you know we we can make that recommendation yeah um but anyway we were protected most of the time so okay. there's this uh factor of where you are in your orbit that's the, that's our first question <laughs> when we realize something's going on is where are we in the orbit and are we approaching one of those regions where uh we slip out from being not protected and so we uh start counting down when that's going to occur because that's when if we were going to do some sort of shelter sort of thing if you will um that's when we would need to take that protection and that protection would only be for maybe 10 minutes every 45 minutes for a few hours during the day yeah when you say orbit do you mean the orbit of the space station around the earth yes so Depending on that position, maybe the right. are you thinking the Earth is going to maybe protect the space station and the crew no, a little bit more? No, it's all the magnetic field. It's the magnetic field. The magnetic field of the Earth is not aligned with the spin axis, so it's tilted. Okay. And it also doesn't intersect at the inner at the center of the the, the planet, and so it's that offset is well. That's part of what that that tilt and offset is what creates the satellite anomaly that we talked about earlier. I see. But it also lowers the amount of. Uh, magnetic protection uh over uh, over the north northern part of north america over canada that's not very well protected okay and if you get over the indian ocean uh west of australia that that section of the indian ocean when we cross those geographic points we're crossing into areas that are not magnetically protected i see so that's your first question and so that so that is you know, are we approaching those regions? And if we're not approaching those regions, then we're protected. Even if there was an EVA, we had a big proton event going. If we're not crossing those specific zones, mm -hmm. then there's no danger, if you will, from the proton event during those. Yeah. Until you do that. So how much of it is, is watching out and watching the crew health, and how much of it is watching the vehicle health? Our our role is, to, is crew health. Crew health. So... What I mean, are you we doing? just we just provide notification. Oh, we you just provide. Tell a, okay. We just tell the. I mean, the flight director knows anyway. We, we say, oh, yeah. we, we're on recall because we had a got a proton event going on. So okay. we go in once a once we have an energetic proton event start. We are on 
on 24-hour coverage. Before our daily, our, our normal routine, we only go in for the mornings just to check on everything, and then we're just on call for the rest of the day and the weekend. I see. But once we cross those thresholds for the protons, then we are there 24 hours. But we will remind the flight director, oh, well, we have a proton event. You should notify the other flight control uh, uh, centers mm-hmm. so that everybody knows. So if somebody's got equipment, you know, they just put out that everybody – it's put out as a note that everybody can can see when, when those times are, and, and it's up to them to protect their equipment if they need to do that. Yeah. But our, our purpose is to strict is, is primarily the crew. Yeah, and providing information to the teams and the crew. And are you watching the crew's radiation, I guess, uh, how much they're absorbing over time? Well, we make estimates about what we think they're going to receive during the course of their mission. Okay. Um, and then we monitor it daily. We can't really, we don't really monitor what their dose is exactly. We monitor what the levels are. So if, mm. if, uh, the dose rates are, are higher than we expected, then we know they're probably getting a little more dose than what we projected at the beginning or vice versa. Okay. And um, so we watch those trends. We watch for those trends to see if there's a change uh, throughout the mission. And once the mission is over, we have some idea what the total radiation was just based on the instruments. But more specifically, each crew member has a, a, a radiation badge that they wear uh, personal dosimeter and we get that back down when they arrive on the ground oh and then that gets analyzed and that gives us the the value that will go into their medical records okay okay so it's documented i guess um your total career exposure yes it's tracked for all their um each each flight there'll be an entry for what what their uh, exposure is but right we track it we, we track their exposure in terms of percent risk and not necessarily so much dose. Okay. Uh, and so our limits are really based on on risk levels. Okay. So the limits would be, I mean, if you've flown in space X number of times and been up there X number of days, maybe you have, you know, you've, you've absorbed enough radiation where that's probably your last flight. Is that is that kind of how it um, works? You could get to that point hypothetically. Okay. okay. Yeah, no, I mean, there's astronauts with hundreds of days, so I oh, know it's like, it's not... It, it's a function of, uh, the risk factors vary as you get older. Oh. And it varies between the, the sexes. Uh, women are more radiosensitive than men. Oh. And um, young people are more radiosensitive than old guys like me. Really? The younger you are, the more sensitive you, you are Right, because to... you got your cells are turning over more rapidly. And so oh. uh, you're going through more cell generations, hmm. uh, whereas when as you get older, cells turn over much more slowly. So if you have uh, some damage to a cell, there's it takes longer to go through those number of generations um, before you might see that effect if, 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 if an effect was to occur. Right. The other part is is that uh, is time in your life is that we also you can also kind of think of it as loss of life so to speak quality of life that oh yeah if you if if you're um you know a 40 year old astronaut and you know there's some cancer takes 40 years to develop once you've had some you know event occur Mm -hmm. um well, that makes you 80. Well, people live to be 80, so you're really kind of still kind of in that zone where that that is kind of like a loss of quality of life impact. Whereas if you were 60 years old and flew and takes 40 years for it to develop, you're 100. Well, are you really having a quality of life issue at that point? Well, no, you've kind of you're out there where you know most people don't live, so you, hmm. you're. It's not really a loss of life effect, so to speak. So as you get older, there's less time in front of you for uh, you know, cancer to develop or some cardiovascular sort of issue to, to, to develop. I see. So for a radiation perspective, you're looking at flying senior citizens. Mm. <laughs> not, not so much. Maybe not. <laughs> There's a lot of other factors besides radiation, yeah. isn't there, for, yeah. for what makes an astronaut successful? Yeah. Um, 
So, I mean, you're you're watching career exposures. You're you're talking about some of the uh, dosimeters and, and some of the hardware actually measuring um, these dose rates, both on the astronaut. And you said there's there's six. You said there's half a dozen. Well, I said there's about a half dozen. Half, about a half a dozen. Kind yeah. Of changes a little bit. So, what are the instruments and what are they doing? Oh my. Um, <laughs> Big question. Yeah, I should have brought a list. <laughs> uh, well, let's start with uh, the simple things. Okay. Uh, the radiation badge sort of dosimeters, they, they use what's, we call them TLDs, tran- uh, thermal luminescent uh, dosimeters, and they're little crystals that are radi- radiation sensitive, and uh, you zero them out, if you will, fly them, let them get exposed, and you bring them down, and then you read them. Oh. So yeah, but so you don't find out any information while they're flying. You only get the data once you get them back down to the ground and analyze them. And okay. we change those out about twice a year. Oh. So every six months we make a measurement. So it's, it just kind of gives us an idea what the average dose is for um, for the six months at different locations. So you have the same type of measurement uh, over a half over uh, you know a couple dozen locations. Hmm. Uh, we're reducing that slowly because uh, we've characterized the station well enough that we can just kind of go to a few reference points and, and um, uh, keep track of the trends. Hmm. Uh, the crew also has a badge that's similar to that, so that goes up with them and comes down with them, and we read that. Okay. Uh, the workhorse that we have is it's a it's known as a tissue-equivalent gas proportional counter. Hmm. Um, and that's that's kind of our workhorse. It gives us it gives us the amount of the, the radiation dose rate. It's telemeter data, so we're talking about an active instrument now. Okay. An active instrument. When I say an active instrument, uh, that means it requires electrical power of some sort. And you're and, getting data more and we, frequently. And we get data telemeter down every yep. minute from it. And cool. so that that allows us to check what the exposure rates are during proton events. So we're watching to see it. You know how much it goes up when we hit those uh, zones where we're not really protected in the orbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also has a dose rate, al- a high dose rate alarm for the crew. If uh, if for some reason we weren't in communication, they would at least get a some notification that that, that there is a, a radiation event going on. Hmm. Uh, so we had two. We had two of those on. We have two different models on the station. Uh, we also had some what are called charged particle telescopes, uh, which are a series of uh, silicon disks, wafers, not very thick, but a stack of them. And so each one is a separate sensor, and you line them up and it, and you watch radiation as it goes, penetrates that stack of detectors and look at how much energy is deposited in each of the, the sensors. Uh, there may be as many as, I don't know, 10 sensors. And hmm. we had a... Uh, we've had a couple internal instruments that are uh, of that type of design, and we have one external in- instrument that had three units in it that's located outside. Uh, we've also got these newer instruments that um, they're about the size of little, of a oversized USB stick that sticks inside the in, the, in- the instrument itself sticks into the side of a laptop. And uh, it's also a, a silicon um, detector. Uh, that's when I say a silicon detector, I don't mean it's detecting silicon. I mean it's ma- the material is silicon, and you're watching the radiation as it hits the silicon. Okay. And it's a it's a semiconductor, so it's basically kind of like a big diode. And so you're watching the signal that comes off, uh, how much energy is being deposited in that silicon detector. Uh, w- as you know, the radio as as the as the day goes on, and so we have we're kind of shifting over to those because they're much they're much more compact sort of instruments than the tissue uh, equivalent proportional counter or TPICs as we acronymize them. Yeah. Um, the the mass and volume are very important when we start considering going to the moon and to Mars. Mm. So having these larger detectors doesn't make sense from a mass standpoint uh so we're kind of shifting over to um using these smaller detectors and uh having those spread out around the 
the station instead of the little passives um, for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Seems like there's a lot of instruments, a lot of data, a lot of recording, a lot of monitoring. Is there a database that you're keeping track of with all of these things? Um, yeah, we can go back and I mean, I, I do it frequently on, on analyzing uh, old old events or whatever. I can always go back and pull up the data from cool. uh, uh, any of the proton events that we've had and, or at any time and look at what the trend was, what the background was uh, uh, for whatever purposes I'm trying to analyze yeah uh, and we can do that for all of our instruments is there uh is there any sort of predictive models where based on the information you have you can make guesses on what kinds of space weather is going to be happening or is it really just kind of reactive just that's just the way it is mm. in terms of space weather we're really in what would be called a now cast situation yeah so we have to watch things evolve yeah however we have situational awareness that allows that we try to develop the the skill to know when we have high threats and low threats and most hmm. of the time it's easy to discern that it's a low threat because <laughs> these the proton events what leads to them are, are very uh, you know specific sort of situations that aren't don't develop frequently yeah um So from that standpoint, we have to, you know, on a day-to-day basis, it's 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 now casting. But overall, for the solar cycle, there's a uh, a cycle effect on what the dose rates are to the to the crews of the station. And so, as the sun goes through its cycle, of being from solar min to solar max, the the dose rates are are changing as a function of that. Hmm. And so. Based on where we are in the solar cycle, we may just what we might project, project for their dose rate for their mission, uh, and we have some models that, that try to do that, but it's it's not an easy thing to do. What's uh, solar min and solar max? What's happening there? Uh, part of the sun's dynamics is is it goes through this long-term cycle that we call the solar cycle, and uh, it goes from a period of time when there's virtually no sunspots, no features on the sun, and we call that solar minimum. Uh, minimum and activity. Minimum activity. Hmm. And this, what's happening is the sun's, I was amazed when I, when I learned this, uh, the sun's uh, magnetic pole is, is, is reversing every 11 years. Whoa. And so as it goes through this process of reversing, kind of in the middle of that process when it's kind of kind of more toward being neutral, if you will. Huh. I mean, it's not really neutral, but kind of in the middle of that. Yeah. That's when we start having all the the hot, a large number of sunspots and active regions on the sun. And the sun is prone to producing these um, proton events. Hmm. And then that's solar maximum. Uh, and then, then the the field continues to flip, and we get back to a solar minimum. And so, from minimum to minimum, your magnetic polarity reverses. And to get it back to where it was to start with, you really have to go through the cycle twice to get the pole to flip again. <laughs> and so, yeah, right. there's even and odd cycles. Well, in conjunction with that activity, there is um, there's a way there, there's some. The output in ultraviolet in a particular wavelength changes between solar min and solar max. And that wavelength is uh, ultraviolet, and it's readily absorbed by the atmosphere, and it causes the atmosphere to expand. So when we go to solar minimum, we don't have as much of that UV radiation coming in and being absorbed by the atmosphere, and the atmosphere cools and contracts. Hmm. And that makes for less spacecraft drag. Oh, and so when during solar maximum that ultraviolet output increases, atmosphere expands and, and and becomes drag on the spacecraft. So that's why we have this solar min, solar max drag on the spacecraft sort of thing. And just as I mentioned earlier, drag on the spacecraft is drag on protons. So when you have less drag on the protons, the produce goes up. Yeah, more drag goes down. So during solar minimum sounds backwards but during solar minimum our our dose rates may be twice as high as they would be during solar maximum for our day-to-day doses 
Because you have less atmospheric protection. Because it's because yes. not as expanded. Yes. yes. Wow, that is that does sound kind of backwards. But and, then I guess and it also on a larger scale, it's not due to the ultraviolet, but over to, due to the activity of the sun and the solar wind and such. You also wind up having the same sort of cycle on on the galactic cosmic radiation that it also is higher during solar minimum periods than it is during solar maximum periods. Hmm. So solar minimum, are, we have our high, highest doses, and then solar maximum, we have lower doses, but we have the risk of these short bursts from proton events that may may add to the crew exposures. Is it, the, is it the increased activity in the sun during solar maximum that's kind of pushing away the galactic cosmic rays? Is that, what, is that kind of what's happening there, or is it something else? Yeah, in a way, it's it's the okay. solar wind and okay. a combination of a few things. That, okay. You know, the, um, you know, the, the particles are coming from very far away, and they see, you know, there's just a little bit of influence, and it changes, and it just, yeah. it, this far into the solar system, it, it it does make a big difference. So this makes me think about deep space missions. If, uh, if you were planning a deep space mission from a radiation perspective, what's the right time? What's the more appropriate time to send people out to, let's just say we have gateway around the moon, to send people to around the moon. Is it during solar minimum or maximum? Does radiation even play a part in the planning? Um, it does play a part in the planning because we have to address the issue. Hmm. Does it determine the timing? Well, if you want to make this a long-term project and be on the moon and go to Mars and not just have one-shot sort of things, then you got to just be able to deal with the the risk of the exposures. Hmm. Um, going during solar minimum times, you're getting a lot more exposure from the GCR, and that's not that's not a good thing. So we have to find ways to kind of try to minimize that dose somehow. Right. And it's not easy to shield. But, you know, you go to Mars, you got a big spacecraft, got a lot of mass, so maybe using that mass uh, prudently maybe you can give yourself more protection yeah uh, you do get a little more protection on the surface of the moon because you got the planetary body giving you you know some sort of shielding sure but uh you have to consider it but i'm not sure you can say one's a better time than the other you know, mm. if you what about the risk of solar flares or coronal mass ejections do you have to would you want to travel during a minimum just to avoid the off chance that you could be affected well, during transit. The thing is, is that uh, the solar proton events are easier to shield. Really? Because they're lower energy. So you can make a shelter, if you will, that can make a significant impact on the the short-term events. So in some ways, you know, the, the better time to go might be during, if you're just trying to pick one time, you know, solar maximum may be a kind of a better time. Hmm. Because lowered overall dose, maybe that the the low the background radiation levels are at their lowest, yeah. which is what you, re you really care about, right? And then the short term bursts that are maybe high dose rate, uh, you can shield against them. Plus, their the, the damaging capability of the protons is not the same as the higher atomic number species that you have in the GCR. So are you looking at mostly low Earth orbit when you're looking at all this data for radiation and monitoring the crew health, or are you really looking further out into space, you know, beyond the uh, Earth, maybe towards the moon, m Mars, in between, to understand the environment for deep space missions? Well, I think we get a feel for for what the environment is, it is in general. I mean, specifically, we're flying low Earth orbit, so our yeah. application is for low Earth orbit, but it's also, sure. uh, we know what's happening here locally, and the moon's not that far away, really. So what we see here is, what so else, it's all the same thing for the moon. So okay. whatever our practices are in terms of monitoring, uh, it's almost kind of in the cislunar neighborhood, we're, we're, we're good. That's good. Yeah, you don't have to rewrite everything. 
Yeah, that's good. Uh, what And now for Mars, I'm assuming it's just going to be a little bit different. Maybe communication is an issue because if a solar activity happens, you have to deal with yeah. the communication delay. That, we're not... We're still kind of working through how we might want to deal with such things. Uh, yeah. We also need more um, longitudinal monitoring of the sun from other angles because what we see here at Earth may not be what's been influencing uh, a spacecraft on its way to Mars or at Mars. Ah. So um, may, you know, more resources are going to be needed in order to be able to do... Uh, uh, some to do to just to monitor the space weather, so we can do our forecasting and analysis and uh, keep the crew advised. Uh, so you're talking about like uh, satellites and probes to go out kind of towards different areas and fill in those gaps. Okay. Be able to see the sun from different angles. Yeah. Uh, we um, had that opportunity over the last decade or so that we've had what was called the stereo mission, which sent uh, a pair of space weather monitoring uh, spacecraft, one ahead in orbit and one kind of lagging hmm. uh, the Earth orbit and going around the sun very slowly. It took a decade or so to to get to the far side of the sun, and then they switched, and now they're <laughs> kind of coming back. But that other perspective of the sun, uh, um, we need to be able to see from those other, other angles uh, – really to, to do the right job to support a Mars mission. Hmm. So thinking about that, and we can sort of wrap up with, with this idea, what sorts of other gaps do we need to fill to make a deep space mission like a one to Mars successful, especially from a radiation perspective? Well, I think uh, the physics, we kind of know the physics. Hmm. Um, so we know we have the type of technical information to, to work on shields and maybe try to optimize some shield designs to try to provide a little bit of more protection. Uh, the, the big question, and I, I think we can respond to the short-term uh, short term uh, influences of proton events and such, but the big question is going to be the effects of the chronic exposure to uh, the galactic cosmic radiation. Hmm. Uh, the the radiobiology, I think there's just a lot that we still don't know. Um, that doesn't mean we, I don't know that that stops us from going, but yeah. I don't know that we'll ever have all the answers. But uh, I think trying to get a handle on some of that is 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 a very big challenge. Um, exposures to, I mean, we understand that, well, I say we understand, I mean, it's, Radiation and cancer—that—that's that, kind of understood in a way. I mean, it's—it's it's a stochastic process, and that it's—it's it's random whether you get an exposure and, and whether cancer develops. But hmm. some other things, um, some other effects, there's not really a good way to, to quantify them. And, and, and uh, for example, the neurological effects getting radiation damage to um, your neural neural systems Hmm. what you know neurons don't grow back very quickly you know so if you wind up killing off neurons here and there um, that's not good (laughs) Um, and there may be other effects that are maybe with time that uh, you know we'll know more about but I think they're still hard to to quantify some of them and um those will, those will always be a, those will always be a challenge. I think that's going to be hanging out there to understand. That seems to be a theme. Is is there's so much that we don't know, and that's the, I guess the beauty of science is the more you learn, the more you realize that there's more to learn, and um, but that should never stop you from exploring. And I think that's what's awesome about NASA is you just kind of keep going, you keep pursuing, and. It's it's this drive to explore that keeps us going out further. I love it. So thank you, um, Steve, for coming on uh, and talking about space weather and radiation, opening our eyes to all this, I guess, not seen part of uh, space flight that's essential to understand to make it successful. So I appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Well, it's, it is kind of an unseen thing. We sit in the back room and nobody <laughs> sees us as we come and go and... 
I could throw in a story for that real quick. <laughs> yeah, do yeah, it. Just to finish on a, maybe a fun note. I was, I don't know, I think it was the 4th of July, and I was in on the holiday week because at the time we would, we went in every single day. And like I said, we sit in a back room, so we're never really seen. And uh, gone down to the Coke machine and get something to drink. And the flight director comes out of the bathroom, and she walks up, and she sees me standing there and looks and, are you? are you one of the radiation guys? And I go, oh, yes, yes, yes. She knows who I am. Yes, yes, I'm one of the radiation guys. He goes, is it a bad thing that you're here? <sighs> no, no, we're just here for a regular shift. <laughs> she was concerned that there was some sort of proton event going on. And it was going to be a quiet day. So, meow. No, okay, no, it's a, it's a nice day on the sun. <laughs> All right, well, <laughs> I guess... Maybe soon it will be a good day whenever whenever people see you come out of the come out of the back room a little bit. All right, thank you, Steve. Okay, thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Dr. Steve Johnson. We talked about space weather, radiation, and really understanding the sun and how that affects our day-to-day operations for human spaceflight. We talked earlier about the hazards of human spaceflight. We have a couple episodes on those, five to be exact, plus a little intro. Uh, so you can go back and watch th- or listen <laughs> to those episodes, the five hazards of human spaceflight uh, at nasa.gov slash johnson slash hwhap. That is our site or wherever you're subscribed to Houston, we have a podcast. Uh, we also worked with the Human Research Program to come up with some supplementary uh, materials for those. So if you go to nasa.gov slash HRP, they have a section there called the Five Hazards of Human Spaceflight, and you can click on the radiation section, space radiation, and they have a lot of extra materials if you want to really learn more about the radiation environment. Otherwise, you can go to nasa.gov slash ISS or one of our many social media accounts uh, for the International Space Station on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to know what's going on 250 miles above our heads. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. So this podcast episode was recorded on August 14th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Bill Stafford, Bill Foster, Pat Ryan, and Isidro Reyna. Thanks again to Dr. Steve Johnson for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.